Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in the word together. Father, we can sing that because it's true that you have pledged yourself to your people, that you will not leave us nor forsake us, that, that your people will never be forgotten, that you will always intervene and love on us and protect us and keep us. We're safe and we're secure, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when the trials of this world, they press in on us, even when our hearts deceive us. The fact that you have pledged your love and your covenant loyalty to your people through Christ, it means that you are bigger than our feelings and you are bigger than our circumstances. And I pray that we would rest in you by faith. Your word says that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Would you feed your people this morning? Will we eat a great meal around your word that we would leave here encouraged and strengthened and changed? Lord, I pray that you will forgive my own sin. I'm a sinner in need of mercy, just like your people. And I pray that you will bless them through me for your glory. Amen. We're going to finish up Ezra chapter 9 today. So uh, we are almost done, like one more, one more chapter. So uh, this is God's word. We're going to pick up at Ezra chapter 9, verse 5, and we're going to read it through chapter 10, verse 1. I kind of hate that it's broken up right there where it is, but uh, we're going to read a little bit into chapter 10, verse 1. Hopefully we'll see why a little later. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God. I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this very day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we and our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword and to the captivity and to plundering and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, Favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forgotten us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, Shall we then break your commandments again 
and intermarry with peoples who practice these abominations. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor anyone to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. And behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, and the people wept bitterly. Amen. If you're with us last week, then we talked about the condition that Ezra found Israel in when he arrived. He made the 900-mile journey from Babylon. It took him about four to five months with probably 3,000 more exiles, and he finally made it. And when he got there, he had to go and do the king's business and move into some of the, the, the neighboring provinces. And after about another four months, he finally came back, and it was time for him to do what he had set his heart to do, to teach the word of God to God's people. But when he got there, there was sin in the camp. That if you go back and read Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, the grievous sin that was in the camp was not primarily that Israel married outside of their ethnicity or outside of uh, their people group. The real issue was that they married outside of the faith, that they married the people of the land who practiced the abominations that the Lord himself had said that he would judge them for. He gets into the holy city and he sees unholy marriages. And it wasn't just a small thing. It was a really big deal. So much so that the leaders of Israel were guilty. The priests of Israel were guilty. The Levites of Israel were guilty, all guilty. Which means that if your leadership is guilty, then it means that the people followed. And their hearts were hardened and darkened and in rebellion. And what you see in chapter 10, verse 1, is the reason I included it in this text, is that there's a change that happens. And look at it. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel, and the people wept bitterly. What you see in this text from chapter 9 to chapter 10 is the softening of Israel's heart that they had been living in sin, willful rebellion against God. And by the time chapter 10 happens, light is shining in on it. They go from widespread evil marriages to widespread weeping on the ground at the temple next to Ezra we're seeing a window of change. They're going from rebellion to repentance. They're going from hard-heartedness to tenderness. And it happens, it happens, it's unfolded literally right before our eyes. And that's what I want us to zoom in on. What's happening that's softening their hearts where they're on their faces in tears over their sin. Now, the wrong way to read this text is to say, how could they do that? 
How could they rebel? Haven't you been in dark moments in your life? Where you're in rebellion? Where your heart is not warmed to the things of the Lord? Where you want to hold tightly to your sin? See, that's what's going on, that, 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 that they wanted these wives, they wanted this pleasure, that it promised them some good, and they were jettisoning the truth of the, God's word because they wanted to hold what they wanted near and dear. Can we not relate? Can we not relate to wanting what we want when we want it, even if it is in rebellion to God's word? The right way to look at this text is outside of the grace of God. That's me. That if God's grace does not keep me soft and keep me near, I will do the very same thing. So the older I've gotten and have grown in the faith, I've seen it. I've seen it in my own heart. I've seen how quickly our hearts can be entangled and ensnared. I've seen how easy it is to justify sin. I've watched people I care for and love just chunk the deuces on the things of the Lord, right? And this may not be you. You may be going into a season. You may be in that season right now, or you may be coming out of it. But my question is this. How are our hearts softened when we're in those places? What does God do when we're in those moments to get our attention, to steal our affections, to rip out our idols? That's what I want us to work through this morning. Now, I'm going to look at it under three headings, and I'll give it to you a little later. But the first thing is just what happens? What is it that Ezra does? that I, th I think it's it catches them off guard almost in a really sort of subversive way. In other words, that their idols are over here and they think this thing is good and right. And then Ezra shows up and he, I think he does something that, that just it grabs and captures their attention. So I want to look at Ezra's heart grabbing response. And I think this captures their attention and look at it with me. So look at his response when he comes back and sees all of this. I want you to know that this could have been played out several other different ways. Like, like the way that this plays out, it was not the only option. Here's what I mean. I had Curtis read from Ezra chapter 7. And you remember in Ezra chapter 7, when Ezra left, he left with a letter from Artaxerxes. And in that letter, did you listen to the authority that Ezra was given by Artaxerxes? Listen to it. I'm going to read it from my Bible. Ezra 7, go over to 25. We're going to read 25 and 26. And this is important. I think this is crucial. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, his, his Bible, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And then those who do not know the laws of your God, you shall teach them. And here is the kicker. And whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Do you see the royal authority that Ezra has when he comes back into Jerusalem? He says, look, 
You go and you appoint magistrates and governors who know your law of your law book. And the people who don't know the law, you teach them. And whoever does not obey the law of your God, you judge them and you do it swiftly. And what were the options for judgment? The first option was take their stuff. Take all of their stuff, confiscate it. The second option, kick them out, banish them, take their citizenship. Let them go out and be out amongst the wild. The third option was take them and imprison them. The fourth option was take their lives. Like that is, those are the options that the king gives Ezra. Take their property, take their citizenship, take their life, or take their freedom. You cannot go in there weak. And so when Ezra goes, he goes into Jerusalem, and guess what he is confronted with? Rampant disobedience, and it brings him to his knees. He's pulling out his beard and pulling out his hair and tearing up all of his clothing, and it says that he sat down all day long, appalled that this was the condition of Israel. But you're the leader, bro. You got to get up and do something. You have to handle this. And notice what it says. I, look, look at the image. Look at the image, the, the transition between uh, verse 4 and verse 5. Look at verse 4. And then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, they gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So he sat there appalled by what he saw all day long. Look at verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. Now, fill in the blank. What would he do? What were his options? Kill them? Kick them out of the land? take their stuff, or take their freedom. Those are his four options from Artaxerxes. But what does he do? He has the power of the sword in his hand. What does he do? I got up, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell back on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Do you see what happened? They deserve swift judgment. They deserve to be punished. And yet he fell on his face and prayed to his God. In other words, in Artaxerxes' kingdom, you might rule by fear. And you might rule by the threat of the sword and you might rule by banishment and imprisonment. But that is not how God rules in his kingdom. In other words, there are things going on in the hearts of God's people that imprisonment won't fix, that a sword won't fix, that kicking them out of the land won't fix. That, 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 in other words, what Ezra is doing, he is moving against the grain of popular culture. He is reacting in such a way that he knows that those weapons that you're giving me, they don't work. They don't change the heart. And so he falls on his face and he prays to his God. In other words, what he is communicating is that there is one person and one person alone on the entire planet who can fix his people. And it is not Artaxerxes and it is not me. It is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And only him, only, only him can fix this. 
It means that prayer, and I get it, that prayer, we, we commune with God, and it's a time to listen and to talk. But this is the second time where Ezra is in a bind, and he prays. That, that They're stuck at the river, and, and they have $144 million worth of silver and gold, and they don't have a military and he prays and fasts in order that God might intervene and get them to Babylon, I mean, get them to Jerusalem safely. This is the second time he does this. He prays and he fasts. Why this time? Because, Lord, if you don't go in there and change their hearts, they're gone. They're toast. And we're dead. That is totally mind-blowing. For them to see him riding in with this authority with the king and then to fall flat on his face before his God. But that's not the only thing that I think he does that, ga- that captures their attention, that sort of takes them off of what they want and draws them into what he's doing. It's the, it's the way that Ezra prays. Now, I want you to look at these pronouns and the way that they come across. Now, look at it in, in 9 verse 5. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying this, Oh, my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. And then right there it changes, and it never reverts back. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this very day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we and our kings. Do you see the switch? In other words, he's not coming in there high-minded, wagging the finger. No, he is saying, I identify with you guys. In other words, he had every single right to say, Lord, my God, look at what they have done. Look at what they are doing. He had every right because technically he had not taken a foreign wife to himself. He could have prayed right there in that moment. Look at me and my righteousness and look how bad they are. He changes that pronoun. In other words, he's putting himself with them, condemned before a righteous And holy God, I'm no different from you. I get it. We have all broken God's law. We have all transgressed his ways. I think those two things are so unheard of. The fact that he would lay down his weapons and pray. And then in his prayer, he's like, look at look at us. We are guilty. Do we not know that that is the way in? That it is the reality that rather than shame you and, and, and make you come at you with all of your offenses, that the, the way that Ezra comes is through prayer, that the way that he comes in is by identifying with them in their weakness. We all stand guilty. I am not above you. Doesn't this sound a lot like Jesus? Don't we know what Jesus has, that he has the keys of hell in his hands? Don't we know that all authority and dominion and power has been committed to the Son? And don't we hear what Paul says and what the author of Hebrews says? That Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father right now. And he lives to make intercession daily for his people. 
that he has all right to pass judgment on our hardened hearts. And what the Bible is saying is that your Savior and my Savior right now is like this in the throne room of God. And he is praying for our hardened hearts. And he is praying that we don't lose touch with the gospel. And he is praying that we will be quick to repent. He is praying and interceding and pleading and pleading, Lord, those are my people. I identify with them in their weakness. You see how that works? You see how that image of your Savior identifying with you and me in the hardness of our hearts saying, you should just get better. You should just get right. No. I get it. I was tempted in every way just like you. I know what it's like to suffer. And I'm with you. I think this starts to work on their hearts. It starts to break down the crud and those things that they want to hold on to. It is through a weak posture. It is through a Savior who says that I identify with you in this place. The second thing we see is not just that the way that what Ezra does that kind of catches them off guard and grabs their attention, but he also does crush them. And I think that's important to see in this text that he has really heart crushing words that confront their sin. In other words, when you look at the text and you don't have to, I'm not going to go verse by verse. It's just pick a verse and it's in there, right? that you sort of see this refrain, these words like iniquity in verses six and seven. You see guilt in verse six. You see great guilt in verse seven. You see abominations in verse 11. You see great guilt again in verse 13. You see iniquities again in verse 13. You see abominations again in verse 13. You see guilt in verse 15. It's really hard to read any single sentence in this prayer without the mentioning of sin. And they're related to this other idea that, that there's related to guilt as well. And so you see this cycle. I'm going to show it to you in one verse. Look at verse 10. And now, uh-oh, that's not the right verse. For, for your servants have forsaken your command. No, I'm still in the, you see. Your servants have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets. Look at verse 14. And shall we break your commandments again? And so what's happening? Let me, let me step back up and clear this up. So what's happening here is, is Ezra is showing them that God's word is an authority. And it stands over us. And it is to be our rule for faith and practice and living. But he also says that when we break this commandments or these commandments, then it is called iniquity. It is called sin. It is called all types of things in this text. And so what's happening here is this is over us. And when we break it and don't keep it, we, be, we become sinners. We are sinning against the Lord our God. And in doing that, we are heaping for ourselves guilt. And it, it, it's so important to see that. The commandment stands above. When we, when we don't keep it, it's iniquity. And when we sin, we are heaping up guilt. And you see it. You see this whole thing. Look at it in verse 6. That's the verse I was looking for. You see, look, look at it. Oh, God, I am ashamed and blessed to lift my face to you. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. So right there, 
sinning against the Lord. It's rising higher than our heads. And then what else is rising higher than the mountains? Our guilt. You see what's happening? The commandment of the Lord, they're breaking the commandment and, be, and, and are sinning. And with their sinning is guilt. It's being piled up is what Ezra is saying. But, so I think it's important to get that. But there's more, right? That left alone, without repentance, sort of getting in there and, 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 and working and endeavoring and owning our sin and asking the Lord through Jesus Christ to blot out our guilt, then what happens is this right here starts to wear on us and it starts to ensnare us and entangle us. And if we don't keep short accounts with God, then we will find ourselves in the bind, entangled and ensnared. And that's why James would say things like this. He says, each person is tempted by his own desire, and when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Do you see what James is talking about? That you play with sin if you want to, but sin will kill you. So John Piper says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you, right? It's what the author of Hebrews says, therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. You see what Ezra, you see what the scripture is saying? Guilt and shame and bondage and slavery. And then you look at verses eight and nine. Look at what he says, that our God might brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, and I don't think he just means they are in bondage to Artaxerxes. Jesus says, he who sins becomes a slave to sin. Paul says in Romans, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one that you obey? What's happening is they haven't been living a life of repentance. And sin has been creeping in and creeping in and ensnaring and entangling. That is how you get a group of exiles who leave Babylon in Ezra chapter 1, zealous to build a temple, zealous for good works. And you get to Ezra chapter 9, they're not thinking about the temple. Ensnared. You want to see how dangerous sin is in this text? They are blinded. They don't even know the danger that they are in. You will notice it. There's this remnant theology. It comes in verse 8, verse 13, and verse 15. They don't know that, bro, we are like one act of judgment away from having no such thing as Israel. That in one day, when David counted his army, the Lord struck down 70,000 in one day. And here's what Ezra is saying. They don't know that we are dwindling by a thread and you're over here playing with sin and you have no idea that if the Lord were to intervene right now in exact judgment, we are all gone. They are so blinded by their sin that they don't see. But Ezra sees. Ezra sees. He comes and he sees. Do you not see? They are so blinded by sin that they are forfeiting these eternal promises Look at what God says. Look at what Ezra says in verse 12. Do you not know that God's intention for us is that we will be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to our children for how long? For how long? Forever. Like forever, ever. Forever, ever, right? 
That is the covenant thrust of God. I'm bringing you into this land, and I never want to kick you out. I want you to have this space, and I want you to have me forever. And what are they doing? Forfeiting their forever for marriages that last maybe 30 years. I get it. She might be fine. I get it that she might be beautiful. I get it. You give me a million reasons why this is a good thing to do, but I'm telling you, it's not a good thing when you forfeit your forever. She's not that good. For you to disobey and dishonor the Lord and marry this woman who lives this type of way or this man who lives this type of way, don't you see that I want you as my bride forever? They don't even see that in their sin, they're forfeiting what is best for something that seems so good and it's not. They don't understand that they're repeating the very same sin that God kicked kicked them out of the land for. And that's why you see this whole thing in verse 10. Now that we are back, what shall we say to this? For we have broken your commandments that you commanded your prophets. We've broken your commandments again and intermarried with the people who practice these abominations. Would you not be so angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? You see the danger that Ezra feels? They don't feel it. They don't see it. And so Ezra has to pray that they would see it. Don't you see? The first sign that we're in trouble is when we move away from just how powerful our sin can be. Our path to healing, to the softening of our hearts, it will oftentimes involve pain. It will oftentimes involve being confronted by someone who loves us. It will oftentimes mean that we are coming to realize our own weakness and owning our own hiding and pretending and that we stop deflecting blame. Oftentimes it takes someone or something outside of ourselves to see it. Now, normally if they were in the word, which you read Nehemiah, they were not. That when Ezra gets up in Nehemiah and reads the word to the people, it was as if that was the first time they had been hearing it. And so what happens is this man is traveling 900 miles to come in to tell you what's right here. And so normally God's word is sufficient. When we pick this up and we read it, it brings conviction. When we pick this up and the Holy Spirit works on it, it brings us back into line with God's ways. But here's what happens. When we put this right here down, there is no authority over our lives and we become an authority to ourselves. And what Ezra is doing, he is coming back in here, giving them help. Do you not see? Do you not see the situation that you're in? They're in danger. Sin is working on them, and they can't detect it. An appropriate place to begin in the healing process is by asking friends or loved ones, do I have blind spots? Is there something in my life that is not adding up? Call me out on it. I had an instance this week with my wife, and I don't mean to put her on the spot, but we were talking, and she just said, she said, babe, I think, I think that's sinful. And we kind of went back and forth, and, you know, some of me wanted to raise up and say, wait a minute, 
and give her, no, 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 it's not, or justifying it. But here's what I got to remember, that God puts people around us and near us, right, who need to have the authority to speak into our lives, to call us out on our sin. And you know what? It hurts. It hurts when we have to be confronted. It hurts when we have to come out of hiding. But I promise you, that hurt right there in that moment is not worth the hurt that we're doing to the Lord. It's not worth this bigger thing that we're forfeiting. Some of you have kids, and my son would not remember this, but we were kicking a soccer ball in our driveway. This was, he was younger. And I kicked it, and it went past him, right? And there's a truck kind of coming down the street. And I'm like calling out to him, like, don't get the ball, like, don't get the ball. And he's like kind of like running. And I'm like, like, don't get the ball. And, and he just was so set on getting this ball. It's crossing the street, going into my neighbor's house. He is not even thinking about the truck that's coming this way. And so at that moment, like, I have to run after him and I have to grab him. And he falls and scars up his leg. And he's mad and he's crying because he's bleeding. But here's the thing, that pain on that knee it's better than that pain getting ran over. And I think we're like kids with our sin. We see it and we pet it and we don't kill it. And before we know it, we chase it and go after it and go after it. And oftentimes it takes someone coming to knock us down. And in that moment, we're scarred up and it's bruised and it's hurting. But here's what's happening. They see the bigger trouble that's down there. Ezra has to break their hearts. He has to confront them in their sins. And if our hearts are in that place where it's darkened, a good place to start is what am I cherishing over you right now? What's competing with my affections? And I'm not saying it's always the case that there's always some sin at the root. Sometimes you have the dark nights of the soul. But in this passage, this is not an arbitrary dark night of the soul. This is blatant. I'm living in sin and I need to be called out on it. And that's what Ezra does. And if you're in that place, search your heart. Ask people who love you and know your hobbies and know your lifestyle and know your practices. Invite people in to see what you can't see. It's going to be painful, but it's a good pain. Last thing I think happens after he catches him off guard with his response of humility and casting his lot with them, and after he confronts them, and I think it, it, it rattles them, they're, they're convicted the Lord does not just want to leave us in a place of conviction. That Ezra also has these heart healing words that point to God's mercy. It's one thing to be convicted, right? But conviction is not the end of joy. You got to go back to the cross where there is mercy and mercy and mercy. And we let the cross have the last word. And that's what's happening in this text. I, I tried to come up with like some clever phrase, but it looks like this triumph of mercy or this parade of mercy. And you see it right here. So every time you see guilt or sin or transgressions, notice the verse that follows every single time in the text. So look at verse 7, where he confesses his great guilt. And then look at verse 8. 
But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hole within this holy place that our God might brighten our eyes. Confession, and it's swallowed up by mercy. Confessing sin, and it's swallowed up by God's mercy. Look at it again in verse 9. For we are slaves, but our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us reviving. Again, we're slaves to sin, swallowed up by mercy. Look at it again in verse 13, that, that verse 10 through 13. It's a really long block where all he is doing is confessing and confessing and confessing. And then look at verse 13b. And after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. And you've given us a remnant as this. You see what's happening. He's confessing sin, and that is real, and it deserves judgment. But he has another lens, another eye focused on mercy. God delights to give mercy to those who would but own and confess their own sin. He will never turn you away. He invites you to come into this place where you can come as your real self. I'm guilty. I'm guilty as charged. And you delight to show mercy to me in Christ. That's how you get these people who are living in willful sin to this place where they're on their knees and worship. Conviction and then mercy. One more story, then we're going to get out of here. You ever been driving and you're on a road trip and you're trying to get to a destination? And if you're like me, like, I, I, I have a hard time driving the speed limit. And so I put the, I put the, the cruise control on 77, 78. I might push it up to 80, kind of depending. But have you ever been in one of those caravans, right, where it's like three or four of y'all? And you don't know each other. All you know is, like, for this brief moment, we're traveling on the same highway, going to the same place, and we all want to go about 80 miles an hour. So you just kind of put it on cruise, and so you got a caravan you, of strangers, right? You don't know them, and you're just cruising right down the interstate. And then you take turns, right, like we do. So if, if we're, we're going to own it. If one of us get caught, then we get it, but we're going to own it. So I'm going to get out in front for 20, 30 miles. All right, bro, you, you got to get out front. So you just kind of tap the brakes a little bit, let somebody else get in front, and you kind of do that dance, and you get down the highway, right? Have you ever been in a situation? I have. Or you're second or third in the line, and you're doing like 80. You come over a hill, and right at the bottom is a state trooper. <laughs> and all of y'all are guilty, all four of you. But he got to get one. And so he kind of turns the lights on, and he comes up the rear. And you, at that point, you're just like, okay, I'm going to bump it back down to 70. And you hoping. You kind of got your, got your hands on the two and the nine. And you're just hoping, like, homeboy, please pass me. Please pass me. And he comes up. He doesn't get the fourth car. He comes up. He doesn't get the third car. So now it's just you and Buddy in front of you. You know one of y'all finna get it. And he comes right past you. And he gets the guy in front of you. And he pulls that guy over. 
and he gets the ticket, the $300 ticket, right? And then what happens the moment that that happens when you know you're guilty, when you absolutely know I have been breaking the law, but this guy in front of me, he just paid the ticket. At that moment, man, thank you, Lord. I, I do that. Like, I, I, I do it. I, I thank the Lord for his traveling grace and mercy, you know. But, but in that moment, right, you experience mercy. You're guilty, red-handed, caught, guilty. But another person is paying for it. You got to know that in the gospel, it's something like that. That your Lord and Savior is out front. And he's going to pay the cost for your iniquity. He's going to pay the debt that you owe the man. And we get to move freely down the interstate. How do you feel in that moment when you know you just got off the hook? Do you speed right then? You put that boy on 70 <laughs> and you just ride it on to the career, right? That's the point. That when we receive mercy, yeah. it is supposed to move us to want to obey. That's what the Lord desires. That not just that we would do this, but that it would come from a place of deep desire. And only mercy gets us there. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you and pray that you would do your sacred work. We pray that your word would continue to work by your spirit upon our hearts. Shock us, Lord, if our hearts are hardened. Do it with the humility of Christ who lays the weapons down and who is lifting us up in his prayers right now. Do it through exposing our sins. May we not point the finger to other people, but may we own what it is that we're grabbing onto. And may we make much of mercy. You delight to punish us less than our iniquities deserve. And we see that in Jesus. Free us up to love you and to respond to your faith, to respond to your goodness. I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.